most entrepreneurs, they buy for the growth rate part of the equation. Well, we're growing and we're growing higher than our industry average, so we must have some secret sauce that's mm-hmm. working, right? If you ask investment bankers, they go to those financial metrics that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And they go to quality of earnings. Well, look at mm-hmm. this. You know, they're up and to the right, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you ask buyers, what they want is a differentiated company. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Craig Dickens, a serial entrepreneur with multiple exits who decided to start an investment bank to help demystify the M&A process and help our fellow founders create the exits they deserve. Craig is one of the investment bankers on the ExitWise platform, and we decided to bring him on to share his particular expertise for guiding first-time sellers to not leave money on the table when selling their companies. In today's discussion, we chat about what to watch out for with unsolicited offers. We talk about translating emotion into finance by educating our clients before and throughout the entire sale process. And finally, We share why all business owners should have an investment banker on speed dial years before you're ready to sell your business. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Craig Dickens. Craig, thank you for being here. Really excited to have you. We got a chance to chat earlier today and I've done a lot of research on you as my whole team has. And I think what I was most excited about is you have done so much, so much in that entrepreneurial journey so many companies that you've built, so many that you've purchased, so many that you've sold. And then you've gone from that kind of entrepreneurial journey into helping others at the end of their entrepreneurial journey by helping start an investment bank. And I know how you think about building this investment bank, right? That this is going to be one of those things that you exit someday as well, right? So I just, it's fascinating entrepreneurial journey, so many amazing experiences. And I know you're going to have a ton to give to our fellow founders. It was very easy. Mark Cuban had this spot book today. And I said, I'm sorry, you got to wait. I got Craig and he's up. Wow. So look out. Thank you for being here. I thought your intro was a way of calling me old because I've had so many experiences. So no, that's great. I'm excited to be here and I I love the work that you guys do. And uh, I think we share a passion for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in general. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think we're both in the business of helping folks ring the bell, right? And, you know, so many businesses don't achieve that life-changing event, right, with the sale of the company. So uh, that's what I get up you know, every day thinking about it's like, all right, how can we help other people do that? I've been there, done that several times, but now the journey is a little bit different at this stage in my career. How do we pass that wisdom and, you know, share the scars on the back and the plaques on the wall, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you said it, the fact that you've been through it, it really resonates with people and it gives us an opportunity to give back and what a rewarding thing it is. And it isn't just ring the bell. It's like, how do you think about, when you should do it, how you should do it, why you should do it. It's that a little bit of the preparation, right? But kind of the the mental game of, is this right for me at this time? And then making sure, right? Like, I think you say nothing in the bone pile, right? I can't remember your phrase. It's a great (laughs) one, right? But you got to make sure that your clients are successful, right? It's everything to them. And we know what it means, right? So Mm -hmm. another reason I was so excited is that you have been through that journey and we sit in a very similar seat today. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, and the statistics are, are out there for everybody to take a look at. And I think people listening to this will go, yeah, that's kind of me. Mm-hmm. You know, entrepreneurs as a class, we're optimists and we're risk takers. And mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, we'll go all in, right? We'll, we'll just push the chips in and say, okay, I'm going to have a lot of my net worth tied up in my business because it's my passion. It's my sense of self. It's my purpose in some instances. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's not always the best advice, right? But that's the nature of the beast. So when we talk about the stakes, the stakes are pretty darn high for most entrepreneurs. And if 70 or 80% of their net worth is tied up in their illiquid private company, generally speaking, you know, that's a, that's a tricky spot to be in. So we take our work very seriously in terms of creating those exits and we just don't give up, right? It's like, mm-hmm. we will find a way if somebody wants, wants to get to an exit. So, I mean, let, let's go back and kind of t- share with people who you are, how you got started, because this entrepreneurial journey is really, to me, unparalleled, the number of things that you have been able to accomplish in a short period of time. I was definitely not calling you old because I, it, it was more like how. I, I kept kind of Ooh. racking my brain. How did all of this happen? You make me feel very lazy. So please take me back when you knew you had the bug and you were going to start kind of the first company. Yeah, I I guess, you know, I I had a mentor who who said, gee, you've got a lot of ambition. You've got a lot of ideas. You know, maybe the constraints of a corporate career are not for you. Right. So that I'll, I'll give him credit for kind of opening my mind to the entrepreneurial path. And I'll also give some credit. I've had some amazing partners and you can't run two businesses at a time, right? Sometimes I had two going, you know, kind of the parallel entrepreneur track without having great partners. So, and also great teams around me. And, you know, ultimately, uh, whether it be a private equity partner or a family office partner or just operating partners. Uh, so I, I give them a lot of credit. And certainly my wife, you know, she puts up with that uh, entrepreneurial uh, ADD that I have, which, uh, you know... It, Again, I take my hat off to every entrepreneur because it's not the easiest way to make a living, but I think the rewards, not just financial, but just, you know, the element of control of your life and flexibility and building something yourself is fun. So I would say, you know, my first entrepreneurial endeavor was, you know, back when I was 24, 25, I started a mail order company and it was really based off of a hobby and it was an expensive hobby. So it was triathloning. And so we'd go away, you know, to these races every weekend and, you know, hotel bills, entry fees, the latest equipment, this, that and the other. Right. So I decided to turn it into a business and I saw kind of a seam in the market in that there were these staunch traditional bike enthusiasts and, you know, Campagnolo Italian parts are the only way to go. Right. But then we see these freaks of nature, these triathletes with aero bars and disc wheels and, you know, all of that. And all of those people had some really high discretionary income as a rule, doctors, attorneys, et cetera, that like, hey, I want a challenge in my life, right? It's either I'm going to climb Everest or I'm going to be a a triathlete. So we said, look, a lot of discretionary income and it was specialized and kind of early adopters and they were being ignored by the traditional cyclist market, right? So that that was my earliest venture and that was the earliest bug. And I had a full-time job to start with. So that's really where where some of that that fuel got added to the fire in, in that particular business. And that story, interestingly enough, we grew that very rapidly and captured a lot of share among triathletes. And this was old school, right? This was 80s when I was 25 years old. You know, it was mail lists, it was placing ads, it was direct mail, you know, yeah, we, yeah. we didn't have email blasts and the like. 
but we actually got a preemptive offer from the number two player in that market, the traditional mail order cycling company still out there. And I was excited and we did the dance and we got what we thought was an amazing offer, but I had this little nagging feeling. And again, you know, I know better now, right? Preemptive offers are never usually great offers. And usually when you have one buyer, you have no real buyers. They're just Mm -hmm. potentially kicking your tires, right? Yeah. So I got the the gall to call other big player in the market and they didn't really love each other. So I said, Hey, I'm in play. And you know, would you be interested in what we built? So that was the first lesson in, in M&A was always get competition involved and don't take that first offer. And we get lots of people who call us and say, you know, well, I've just signed an LOI. Can you help me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe, yeah. but let's orchestrate some competition immediately so that, you know, we keep that buyer honest. But anyhow, that was my, my first foray into the business. I started up seven companies and acquired seven companies. So a total of 14. And then on those companies, I added 22 add-on bolt-ons to grow enterprise value, <laughs> you know, quicker. Right. Yeah. Um, so I've been a buyer and a seller and had some great exits and had some okay exits and learned a lot of lessons along the way. Thanks for sharing, Craig. Uh, you know, I go back to the first company you started, you had a full-time job. And so the light bulb's kind of going on to me that you are a multitasker. You can run two businesses <laughs> essentially at the same time, employment and your own company. I want to give a shout out. I've invested in the triathlete space, right? And it's not that I'm an expert, but I have friends that do it. And so uh, Ferris Sabati, who has My Swim Pro, is really the, the top swim community and coaching app in the world oh, right yeah. now. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of triathletes use that product. And then Nick Biosensors, Meredith Cass has built this company where she is measuring real-time hydration for really triathletes, distance runners. So yeah, you absolutely learn about that audience and the disposable income. And so I'm getting to a question here. Mm-hmm. When you went to sell this business, Today, we would see all these businesses saying, okay, here are some financial metrics and multiples, but look at the data that Craig must have, the access to this buying group, right? Can you talk about maybe that exit and the certain asset that might have really helped drive that competition that I'm guessing, right, I don't know, was more than just the financial metrics? Because that's how you get the outliers, right? Where you find Mm -hmm. something, wow, everybody needs this. Yeah, I would say it was a great introduction. And again, it's old school. People in marketing take this for granted now. We bought a lot of data. We kept rolling profits back into this list and this differentiator. You know, nowadays you can use the credit card agencies, right? And we Mm -hmm. did that back then Mm -hmm. to get that ideal profile and to get, you know, now they'd call it buyer intent and they, you know, it's much more sophisticated now, Mm -hmm. but really what they were buying was access to that market and access to our data. I mean, anyone can, we weren't manufacturing products. We were buying products that were geared to that market and we were becoming the channel to, you know, go out and procure those folks. But really we had a list of, you know, 26,000 triathletes that spent an average of $1,100 with us, yep. right? In a 12 month cycle, not, not even talking about today's lifetime value, right? Cause they always come back for more with mm-hmm. heart monitors or, you know, so really it was all about the data play. And, and really the lesson there is why do acquirers acquire? Mm-hmm. 
they really owned the bike market and they had the mail order catalogs back in the day, right? And they would catalog bomb the same people, but they didn't have what you'd call today our ICP, our ideal client profile. Mm-hmm. And they really bought the list, if you will, because, and then they added it to their machine. So with that discretionary dollar, I mean, they tripled their average cart by yep. today's standards and in e-com just by having access to those folks. I'd love to kind of back into that and what the kind of teachings could be, because to me, we see a lot of business owners who are looking to sell and we say, wow, okay, so you've, you've got size, you've got growth rate, you've got great mm-hmm. profitability. And what is that like intangible thing that you have? And when you see you know, the, the audience that you've captured and then very little churn, right? Or mm-hmm. a very high repurchase rate that that audience is incredibly loyal that is yeah. those opportunities to really go beyond what an industry multiple on revenue or EBITDA might be. Is there anything else that you would add to that little picture I painted for, for business owners to think about when they're thinking of the value of their business? Yeah, great question. And I think you hit on it earlier. And at JD Merritt, you know, we, we've done some and working with other colleagues, we have done some survey work around why buyers buy. Mm-hmm. And if you ask most entrepreneurs, they buy for the growth rate part of the equation. Well, we're growing and we're growing higher than our industry average, so we must have some secret sauce that's Mm -hmm. working, right? If you ask investment bankers, they go to those financial metrics that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And they go to quality of earnings. Well, look at Mm -hmm. this. You know, they're up and to the right, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you ask buyers, what they want is a differentiated company. There you go. So really what we were in focusing, you know, and and I have a a mentor of mine, Greg Alexander, you know, and many people have have coined this before him, but, you know, the riches are in the niches, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we were this little niche of, you know, everybody thought triathloning was going to be a fad, right? So "Ah, that's a fad. We're not going to pay attention. We're not going to pay attention. We're not going to pay attention. All of a sudden it's a, you know, half a billion dollar market. So that differentiation, so my advice to entrepreneurs is to really think, especially pre-sale, you know, everybody has their elevator pitch. Everybody says, here's why we're different. And, you know, a lot of that is drinking your own Kool-Aid, but really focus on what is different about your offering or your ideal client profile that someone can pour fuel on it and have a disproportionate win rate or a higher profitability or a higher growth rate. Cause those same things are true, right? In the buyer's eyes, but they want to know if this thing is going to go from 30 to hundred million. Right. And yes. it's all in the differentiation. I can sell differentiation. I can grow differentiation. If I'm a me too, I'm not going to get an outlier outcome. And from an investor standpoint, I'm not going to get the returns that would beat sticking it in today's T-bills. I love it. All right. That was perfect. That was kind of what I was looking for. It was how I thought I saw it and and you really kind Mm -hmm. of clarified it. Um, Could we go back? I know you got a bunch of exits and you're buying companies, but you Mm -hmm. touched on something that comes up a lot for founders, which is this quote, inbound interest, right? And so I kind of try to tell cautionary tales that a lot of these calls that you're getting are from analysts, set firms that are just kind of poking for information and that in general inbound interests tend to be a waste of time for founders. And it's not to say that we haven't transacted with those exact same buyers for founders, but you made the comment, you got to create competition. You got to do it really quick in those situations. Maybe you could expand a little bit more, right? Because that is one of the secrets for sure. 
Yeah, it's a great question. I think, look, you know, business is a full contact sport. And if you have private equity and other investors, they are going to spin up a biz dev outbound marketing campaign. Mm -hmm. And what their goal is, and I don't besmirch them this because I do it myself and I've done it myself and, and we do it on behalf of clients is to generate preemptive deal flow, Mm -hmm. meaning deal flow that doesn't have an advisor, that doesn't have great an intermediary or even an attorney or or CPA. They want to get their hooks in you so that you'll share a bunch of information and that they could potentially buy you at a discount to market. Yes. And again, buyers are investors, really. Yes. Right. And the old investment adage is buy low, sell high. It doesn't get much more complex than that. Correct. So if they can, part of their marketing is, yes, they will come to investment banks like us and say, what great assets do you have? But they will also have a preemptive strategy to go out and get to owners directly, establish a relationship, rapport, you know, hopefully have that connection and be able to develop that relationship so that the owner goes, you know, this is a pretty good fit. I like these guys. It's a quote unquote fair offer. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have anything to compare it against, how do you know it's a fair offer? Right. So and, you know, the cautionary tale there is and you hit on it. Look, you're the boss. You're the entrepreneur. And if you're bored one day, you take the call or if they happen to get through your EA, you take the call and it's, you know, it's kind of an ego boost. And you start to think about your business and all of a sudden you get 20 calls. You're like, wow, I must be in a great tailwind sector or people have found me now or my SEO is working and now I'm on their radar. Right. But it can be a colossal waste of time. Yeah. And even more so, it can be a little bit more damaging if you share too much information. Correct. I got a couple of friends in the business and a couple of people have changed the iteration. But, you know, buyers are the old adage is, you know, buyers are full time predators and you're part time prey. Yeah. And ultimately, that's how that dynamic works. When they're reaching out to you, they want to buy you at a discount nine times out of ten. Yeah, absolutely. When it is kind of that unicorn situation where it is actually a buyer that is serious about buying your company. We often see that you've already had a relationship with that group. There's a business development piece going on, maybe some co-development, and they're saying, you know what, we should really just own this company. And so they're Mm -hmm. coming from a little bit more of a position of knowledge about the business. Mm -hmm. And that makes a lot more sense, but it doesn't make sense to not spin up competition. And you were able to do that on your first exit. And it's one of the things that really investment bankers can do for you, right? And particularly if they know the buyer set, they know that that industry well spinning up that competition can allow you to say no to the first one, bring some leverage and eventually find the right buyer, the right numbers, the right terms. And I want to kind of back up a little bit, right? So entrepreneurs have chosen their field typically because they want to be in control and a preemptive approach or even spinning up quick competition when you're not really ready to sell Mm -hmm. is a passive reactive approach to monetizing your life's work. Mm -hmm. Right. So a lot of times, you know, there's a fear that entrepreneurs have that, well, you know, if I bring in professional advice when I have a preemptive, I'm going to scare them off. Oh, yeah. Right. And so, you know, the consequence of not being ready can cost you millions or a failed deal or huge distraction. Yeah. But I think t- I want to dispel the myth a little bit. And there's really three reactions that a preemptive bidder will have to you saying, hey, I want to pause. I want to bring in great advice. I want to get my ducks in a row, right? The first reaction is, oh, well, really sorry to hear that, but we're out. 
which again, that tells you <laughs> something about the quality of the buyer. It tells you about their intent. They were trying to steal your company. hundred percent, hundred percent. The second is excellent news because now I know you're serious if you're getting professional advice and me as a buyer, I know you're not just wasting my time tire kicking to get a free valuation of your company, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they say, yes, put me into your process. Let me know when you're ready. We'll still be here because we have strategic intent mm-hmm. uh, and we're glad you have a professional involved because you can still run the company without being distracted. And then the third app, potential outcome to saying, I need some help and I need to slow this down a little bit is you know what, we really don't want you to go to market. So now we're going to up our offer 20, 30% with yep. a fast close because strategically you're, you know, you're worth that much to us. We've done the homework on you and we're serious about buying you. So sometimes slowing that down is the best approach and really being ready yep. and having all your ducks in a row. And, you know, we kind of call that the trifecta of M&A, but I, we can get into that in, in a little bit. Oh, those are three great buckets. I, and particularly, I think number three, them giving you a, an offer to not go to market. I think mm-hmm. having that expertise behind you to know, is that really the take me off the market offer or not, right? And a banker is going to have a very good sense of, of whether that's true. And I really like the number two bucket as well, because as business owners, we think that oh, every buyer is just trying to like steal the business. No, mm-hmm. like it, the ones that want to be part of a process, they have a real mission to buy a company mm-hmm. that is strategic, just like you. And if the math ends up working for their model and they can justify their real strategic value, they will be there at the end. Right. And they understand that they are professional buyers. So obviously, bucket one, you really want to stay away from anyone that makes an offer and then runs. The second you want to, you know, get professional help is never going to be a serious buyer. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I love that. I love how you broke that out, the three buckets. I'm definitely going to remember and, and share that. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I sit on the board of a, a outdoor products company and, and one of my main functions on the board too. And I think this, you know, the more entrepreneurs can get educated on the ecosystem of who buyers are mm-hmm. and even through the lens of those, you know, who are the good guys? Who are the time wasters, right? Who are the ones that are professional buyers? Part of my role is, I mean, they get inbound all the time, mm-hmm. right? Within two minutes, I can figure out what type of buyer, Mm -hmm. are they a search funder looking for anything, or are they committed capital? Have they made acquisitions in the space just because I have knowledge and data behind me? So, you know, if you have a mission and you don't want to get distracted from your mission, you know, understanding that this is really just a, a huge time suck if you don't have some help figuring that out. And if you're not prepared to do anything with it, the old, I just signed an LOI, now what, right? The yeah. odds of that deal getting to close are, are pretty slim. I love that you said that because when I look back at my entrepreneurial journey for companies, I wish I had the investment banker that I had at the end on my advisory board throughout. Just having that insight of what's going on in the market, what's being valued, what's not, it it is like playing inside baseball. I'm not exactly sure what that term is, but it is an unfair advantage. So it's not only that you won't get distracted because you have somebody to tell you, hey, is this real or not, or how should I react to it? But I just think the insight that some of these people have is so deep and it is a way to like think about building your business. What are the next steps? Some of the bankers we work with, you know, I just I had a call today even where they were saying, hold tight, 
what you're going to see in the next 90 days is going to change the way you think about this industry, right? And who knows that kind of data, right? It's somebody that really is in the weeds with the biggest clients in the space that are, you know, making enormous moves. And to see some of these smaller companies to have that knowledge, it, it really, it's incredible. So I'm, I'm excited that you're doing that for founders, not just the investment banking side, right? But the, that advisory side. Yeah. And one other thought there, and this is a help to management teams too, you know, and I, I've written a couple blog posts relative to, you know, why you should have an investment banker on speed dial, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, to that advisory end, you know, we, we've sat through lots of board meetings in different companies and, you know, management is very proud of the fact that of X, right? Well, yep. we've, we've grown 20%. You know, at the press of a button, we can find out all of the industry stats, yep. we know who's growing at what rate, what the average is, what the metrics are, what how fast they're collecting their cash, right? Yep. So when we say, okay, kind of reverse engineering your exit, if we're growing at 20%, but my industry is growing at 30, I am yep. a laggard, not a leader, right? So exactly. we know we have a problem against this big data set. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times we can help management teams really clarify. And it's not just through the, the lens of a buyer. You may never exit. But you want to run a great company so that you're defensible and de-risked and, you know, that you're not going to have to worry about going out of business if you're compared to your peers, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of times we can serve that function and help management teams really drive outstanding results because, you know, we look at hundreds of companies a year. So we have good personal data sets, right? In addition to all the data and subscriptions uh, globally. Yeah. Craig, that might be some of the best advice. We haven't really given that before, but if an entrepreneur is thinking about, hey, I'm going to have an exit someday, understanding who the best investment banker for them might be, who that person might be, and engaging Right. And, and inviting them in to understanding their business and giving advice along the way, whether it's formal advisory role or not, I think yeah. makes it just makes so much sense. The inside information that you have, not just like that we've subscribed to all these data sources, right? And we can pull your a laggard or you're a leader from a growth rate perspective. But it might even be, you know, in the market today, the the best outcomes are created by the ones with the highest growth rates and profitability is less important. And that might have been two years ago, right? But today, and a lot of what we see is the companies that have that profitability now are the darlings of the ball, right? And just to have that insight as you're growing a company, I know I would have loved to walk into my board meetings as CEO and describe kind of the external industry map and where we fit within it and where we need to go to get that best return on, on everyone's investment. I love that, right? I say it every once in a while, but I think you really clarified it. And the fact that you're playing that role today, I love it. I wish I I was doing more of that myself. Could we, I I don't want to derail this side of it, but you've got, you've got so much experience. Can you talk about some of the other businesses you've bought, sold, built, right? I know you've kind of combined a lot of that because I bet, you know, there's more learnings there for us. Yeah, I can. Th- you know, there's two that I think would be helpful to, to your audience. Uh, one, I'll, I'll keep the story real brief, but I bought a company. I own the company total uh, three and a half years. And, and this is the lesson here. And I'll, I'll bottom line it first and then tell the story. You know, one of the major things that I think, and we all get so ingrained in the weeds of our own business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're thinking about exiting the business at some point in the future, We need to start making that mental shift from working in the business to on the business, Mm -hmm. right? And we also need to start thinking like an investor, 
because ultimately that's who your buyer is going to be. Mm-hmm. And if they have to change a bunch of your decisions and lifestyle decisions and all the you know other stuff that entrepreneurs get you know in the weeds on, running a bunch of personal expenses through and you know all those kind of fun stuff. But thinking like an investor, so I bought a company. It was in the plastics business and it was in what's called labware, test tubes, petri dishes, you know, things that are used in a lab, you know, specimen cups, really sexy stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know. um, I bought this company and it was a lifestyle company out here in Washington. Mm-hmm. And all of the customers were on the East Coast practically. I mean, there was some West Coast business, but, you know, matching the population of the U.S., right? Sure. And our, our client base, our customer base were the big diagnostic laboratories and the distributors that serve those laboratories. So like LabCorp, Quest Diagnostics, all sure. of these people. And so in looking at the business, I said, okay, I'm here and this is a delivered model. So I'm shipping air. A test tube is mostly air mm-hmm. and I'm shipping it to the East Coast on a delivered freight basis. And when freight rates were cheap and when gas was cheap, right, it's a great business and the EBITDA was terrific. But I basically made the decision and played chess versus checkers Mm -hmm. and said, I'm going to think like an investor and I'm going to think what I can do for the exit. I saved $2 million by closing the plant down in Washington and opening a plant on the eastern seaboard, Mm -hmm. right? Two million times a seven multiple like that. Right. Yeah. Now, if I had thought about the lifestyle business and all of that, and oh, well, I want it out here and maybe we can grow our West Coast stuff. Right. So I really want to encourage entrepreneurs listening to, to, again, play a little chess versus checkers and say strategically, how can I create value in this business? Um, we were growing organically, terrifically, and then making that move. Right. That was the difference. I didn't do much. Right. To improve the profits of that business. 15, 20 percent mm-hmm. over that hold period mm-hmm. with, you know, 10 percent organic growth. But by making that one strategic move, which now in hindsight seems like a no brainer, right? That's a little bit of, you know, orchestrating your exit a bit. Sure. But the time was then because we captured all of those savings by moving it to the East Coast. So that's just a quick story. It's a, it's a great one. I think a, a lot of us founders would not see that right? We wouldn't see it. We've built a business. It's serving our purpose, right? To your point, it's probably our, it's our personal piggy bank. It is our lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it might occur to us, right? Oh yeah, probably would make some more sense over there, but really financially, what, what is the impact of that? And if you come in and look at it, would I invest in this business today? What are the three things that I could do to dramatically improve the value of this business? I love it. I step back and take a look at your own business and see what you should do as an investor. It's a great, great piece of advice. You know, well, the other, you know, so look, um, sometimes and today's marketplace, and I want to be timely for people that, you know, some companies are struggling, right? And some companies through no fault of their own, right? They're growing and their cost of capital is just doubled and tripled, right? So their line of credit and all of that. So I want to share a story because not every, uh, it has a a perfect ending. So I had a company and I had originally had the company with a partner. We brought in a family office partner for growth capital. And then uh, we were growing pretty dramatically and my partner wanted out. So I bought my partner out of that business. And then 2009 hit. And we were kind of a second half business. So we build up a bunch of inventory and we have strong, strong demand in the second half. Well, when the world stopped back in the Great Recession, we were growing 40% a year for the two years prior. We had some Fortune 500 contracts that we landed and it was like, Katie bar the door, right? Everything was good. 
and then 2009 hit. So the value of my inventory dropped dramatically. I was stuck with a bunch of inventory and the bank came to us. And I think there's probably some folks out there now that are getting some pressure on leverage rates and cost of capital. And they said, look, and it turns out they were a bad operator. Mm-hmm. Um, they swept our account right when they didn't have the legal right to. They were a zombie bank. Mm-hmm. They went to zombie just like yep, that yep. because they had too many commercial loans and real estate loans that were going bad in that mix. So I was forced to either you know shut it down because they were going to pull our line of credit or sell the mm-hmm. business. So what I decided, and, and nobody was from a capital standpoint, nobody was investing during that time. There was no capital available. I couldn't go to banks and ABLs and others to kind of dig out of that situation. So what I did is I ended up selling the company and there were three pretty distinct divisions, right, of the company. Um, so I broke them up because, I, they, you know, they were they were distinct. So there wasn't a true pure play buyer that would be interested in yep, all of them. Yep. So I broke them up into three different pieces, sold them to three different companies. Uh-huh. Now, I left probably 10 or 15 million dollars on the table, but I satisfied debts. Right. And I basically from an ROI standpoint, I still did well uh-huh. on owning that company, but not as good as if the market conditions were better. Yep. So my point here is, if I hadn't had that mindset to use M&A as a tool, right, I probably wouldn't have been able to execute, you know, breaking it up into three pieces and whatnot. But, you know, the, the cautionary tale there as for entrepreneurs is, you know, you always have to run the company in such a way that you can be prepared for those kind of events and that you can be prepared to execute well in that situation. And, you know, M&A is a powerful tool when you have to get out of hot water uh, versus, you know, lose it all. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, with personal guarantees and all that on the Mm -hmm. line, it's also a great argument for, you know, in these kind of markets, partnering with private equity and others so that you can de-risk your personal assets a little bit. So, uh, you know, I want to share that story in full transparency, because while it wasn't a great exit, it was a good exit but an unconventional one, right? Yeah, I mean, remarkable that you were able to kind of see the pieces of the puzzle and separate them in a way that somebody or multiple parties could find value in it. Where I thought you were going was, you know, kind of understanding timing and how the world can change on a dime. And, you know, when do you Mm -hmm. invest in your business? When do you actually sell your business? And I got caught in 2009 with a business that was growing really well and I was selling the business and I was selling to a major competitor, much bigger with, you know, all the financing in the world, the biggest names you can imagine, right? In venture, were on the board of this company. And I was just, I was thrilled. I was moving to Silicon Valley. I was going to be one of those guys that had this success moved out. And I was apartment shopping and I had a desk at the acquirer and the final signatures were going to be signed at a board meeting a month later after we'd basically already inked the deal. And so I'm sitting there in their office and I get a tap on the shoulder and it is August of 2008. And they're saying mm-hmm. the world is coming to a stop. We are canceling this. And they yeah. pulled back everything yep. and walked me to the door. And and I thought yeah. you were going to have this you know terrible experience that I had. And you have to go home with your tail between your legs. And you know going through an M and A process is very difficult. And you're going to lose employees, or at least we did in that situation. So it really put an end to that company as we knew it. We certainly had some intellectual property and it was able to save a few things over time. 
But to me, it was more about timing. Can you build a business that can weather those storms, to your point? But when is the right time to sell a business? Maybe you could go into that because we cannot predict you know, the next world-shattering event. Um, and, sure. and I think, and I've heard you talk about founders, oh, I'm going to wait till I'm 65, and that's the convenient time for me to exit. That is certainly an interesting talk track. But today I'm seeing more and more founders thinking about, I'm going to do this multiple times and they want to maximize each time, right? It's a journey. And I love, love, love seeing that. But still there is this hesitancy like, oh, should I do it now or should I wait, right? And you and I, we don't have crystal balls, but I'm in this situation routinely where I need to provide that advice. And having been in those shoes of, wow, the world just ended and it crushed you know, our opportunity. It gives me maybe a little bit of a distorted perspective, but I'd love to hear yours on how you advise clients who have a real opportunity to exit their business and how to make that decision, pulling that trigger to sign that LOI really and go into exclusivity Mm -hmm. for the next 60 days to sell that business. It's a big, big moment. I'm wondering, you know, how you handle it. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's some general advice and some specific advice that I can think of. And we've had partners in our business. uh, You know, one of our investment bankers is a four-time venture-backed CEO. Mm -hmm. And one of the companies, uh, he was literally in the final stages of investment from a company. And I won't go into the company names. You can probably figure it out. But uh, the deal basically died on 9-11 because that company was in the World Trade Center and no investments were happening in the world stock, right? So, the you know. I think the first macro level is let's control what we can control and let's manage what we can't control, which is market, right? Where, where we are in the market. So I, I referenced the trifecta of M&A earlier and, and you know, it's our belief and, you know, the data would uh, back it up that, you know, there's three things in the trifecta, personal readiness, your financial picture, you know what your number is. You know what you're, you know what you want your life to look like in this second chapter, whether it's retirement or going on to do your next thing or what have you. But you have to be personally ready, and we see so many people not taking advantage of all the personal readiness aspects, like your estate plan, your tax plan, you know, donor advised trusts, other things to do to not put so much pressure on the, getting the world beating multiple to meet your lifestyle. But let's be smart and get ourselves personally yes. ready. The second part is getting the business ready. Do you have good accounting? Do you have low customer concentration, right? This is the working on the business versus Mm -hmm. in the business. Reverse engineering your exit and making sure your company is prepared. When those two things line up, you're in Mm -hmm. good shape. And then third, now you can control all of those. You can control personal and you can control business. And if you don't know how to control the business, get some advice, right? Or hire a rock star CFO or, you know, start having that investment banker on your board, right? To, To give you that roadmap. But the last one on the trifecta of M&A is market. You know, are interest rates low? Is there a ton of dry powder, right? Is there a ton of cash on strategic balance sheets? Is M&A in your sector, you know, have a lot of transactions or very few transactions? You know, is there disruptive technology going on to, to maybe have, uh, you know, some uh, headwinds against your industry? Are there regulatory changes, right? Some of those things, all of those things you really can't control, but you can position yourself to be different or differentiated in the market or 
maintain a state of readiness, just like you mentioned earlier, right? Hey, wait 90 days because we know this is happening in the Mm -hmm. industry. When those three things, when you get a handle on those things, and there's a couple other macro cycles, and I wrote an article recently on, you know, boomerpreneurs and kind of securing their legacy. There are known transfer cycles in M&A, sure, sure. right? And so, you know, talking to an investment banker and saying, all right, when is it a good time? What are the market conditions? But when you can get those three things to line up, two of which are in your control and one of which you just need to manage, that's usually when you can get the best outcome. Craig, it's great. Uh, we, we talk a lot about this with founders where getting kind of personally ready, what is your number, talking with wealth management, setting up trusts, being prepared, because when you go into a transaction and you are anchored in a number that you know takes care of the things that you want to take care of, and maybe it's it's by the next business, whatever that whatever those needs are that you and your family have, when you have that number in mind, not only is it create kind of some grounding for you, but it aligns you with your team. Now the investment banking team knows what you're going to say no to, what you will say yes to. And what I would caution Mm -hmm. is what we see is not only do we often get that number and create structures to go far beyond those numbers, but when founders end up seeing, oh, there's more, they go, well, well, is there more, right? And everybody wants kind of mm-hmm. that that last dollar. And so mm-hmm. understanding what your number is, is really important. And that is part of getting kind of personally ready, getting the business ready. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. Having even a controller on some of these smaller companies, having that person on your team, Yes, a rock star CFO is fantastic, right? To have your real kind of financial house in order makes a ton of sense. And then I think, you know, interestingly, I'd love to know your opinion today in the transactions that we see, you know, we're seeing them right around that $50 million mark, right? Anywhere for us is 25 million up to 250 million. But we have several that are right around that 50 mark. And for us, it really feels like a sweet spot today. The market is saying there is a lot of dry powder out there and the the credit markets are not impacting these deals at this size as much as the 150, 250 million dollar deals. And so all of this private equity, all these dollars are looking a little bit downstream and there's competition there. And I would just urge our clients, if you have your house in order, you know your number and you've reached it, this may be a really great time to kind of execute on that on that LOI. I would love, even if you have a totally different opinion, I'd love your insight mm-hmm. onto the market component today. And, and maybe this doesn't travel yeah, well through yeah. history, but but today oh, for our <laughs> founders, you know, what are you seeing? Sure. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, there are buyers for A minus, A and A plus assets at multiples that are just as high as 2021. Yes. Because there's more competition for better assets. Again, think like an investor. They look at your company as as an asset, right? They go a lot deeper than that. But at the end of the day, what are my investment returns going to be from owning this company? So, you know, B minus, C plus, D plus companies aren't transacting in this market because, you know, because of those, you know, the covering the debt service, right? The cost of capital is higher, et cetera. So ultimately, deals are getting done and the maintaining your state of readiness and being, you know, great position to transact. Those deals are, yeah, I, I talked to a, a company yesterday, $112 million company revenues with uh, 22 million in EBITDA. And, you know, their EBITDA margin is clearly seven or eight points higher than everyone in their industry. Yep. I'm like, you can transact and we can get just, you know, a rodeo for your your auction, right? To, to make sure that you get the highest amount. So, 
you know, market wise. Um, the other thing that I would say for founders, you know, that that may feel like they're not quite ready, use this time and market where cost of capital is a little higher, takes, you know, the lending environment takes a little more underwriting, right, to really get prepared. And for boomers in particular, you know, the most entrepreneurial generation uh, to date, there's going to be this unleashing and we're already starting to see it. Everybody's getting prepared. Everybody's thinking about it. Everybody's tired. I went through COVID. I've been through recessions and now I've got this going on, right? Uh, whatever we call this growth recession, mm-hmm. there's going to be an unleashing of, of, you know, and supply and demand rules will come in uh, just because you're ready when the marketplace is going great, right? You're going to have a hundred other companies just like yours on the market that buyers get to pick. From. Oh, Craig, that's, so. that's perfect. I think you, you added kind of that fourth piece that I hadn't mentioned really, which is the supply and demand component, right? There are a lot of companies that are holding off going to market is so there are very few great assets out there. And if you happen to have that scale growth rate, EBITDA margin, the, that profitability, there's a lot out there. Mm-hmm. I, you know, we're in one situation right now and I'm trying to impart, right? We don't have the crystal ball. We have we actually have one investment banker that says, I have a crystal ball, but it's in the shop right now, which is which is fantastic. <laughs> um, right. But by all accounts, we, we do, since we've seen so much and we've been in these founders' shoes, we've been burned and we've been successful. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a really good position to give advice right even though we we really don't know what's going to happen in the future it's it's a tough place to be it's even tougher for the founder so thank you thank you for that uh, look i want to be respectful of your time i know we've just kind of scratched the surface of your kind of entrepreneurial experience you've jumped into building an investment bank and i know you've even had a merger is that right on that on that investment mm-hmm. bank to yeah. grow further yeah. you're thinking about mm-hmm. that exit I know there are ways that you and I are going to be able to work together just because we have that same kind of founder empathy, right? We know what they are going through. And I think both of us have that hustle is that we, it is our responsibility to not fail for these people that we have just amazing respect for. So I I don't know if you have any more parting words of wisdom for, for our audience. I don't want to take too much more of your time. Yeah, no worries. This has been great. I've enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, we're, we're brothers in this fight on behalf of our clients. Yes. Right. And, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, the the entrepreneurial journey is not always an easy one. It can be a lonely one. And then when you're making those decisions, you know, there's a measure of life stressors. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've all seen that yes. list. Um, you know, it's death of a spouse, you know, divorce, you know, getting married is a stressful event. Right. And if you go through that list, you'll see about 30 of the top 100 stressors in your life are potential items that when going through an M&A transaction. Mm-hmm. So getting, you know, quarterbacks in the mix, getting excellent advice, getting people to manage all of those personal business, right, M&A and, and market feedback, you know, it's pretty stressful. But if you have those people on your team, it can be life altering and you don't have to feel like you've just gone through a war and done it all yourself yeah. right? after a long career. So really love the work that you Thanks, do Craig. and your team does. And I think uh, our, our role is to be the champion of the entrepreneur and, and make sure that they get the outcome that they want. And uh, to me, that's giving back, right? That's, that, that's the fun part. Craig, thank you so much for your time. That was perfect. I really, really, really appreciate it. I know everybody is going to take a lot from this particular episode. So thank you. Thanks, Todd. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, 
Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.